Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Now, San Diego, California, at 18239 Paseo Victoria Drive, there stood a 9,200-square-foot mansion, seven bedrooms. And rather than sell for the typical millions of dollars for homes in this exclusive, quiet, gated neighborhood, it sold for a mere $668,000. So 9,200-square-foot, seven-bedroom mansion in San Diego. The neighbors bought it, and when they bought it, they destroyed it. It was dubbed Death Mansion, and it's where 39 people lost their lives in a mass suicide that was directed by Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate. The cult suicide was based on the premise that in order for them to get to the next level, so they had been developing their souls, and in order to get to the next level, they had to exit this physical body where a UFO would pick up their souls and transport them to heaven. And it sounds uh, remarkably similar to the Gnosticism that we had studied that was encroaching on the early church. Prior to their exit, Marshall Applewhite had complete control over their lives. He told them when to eat, when to sleep, what to read, who to associate with, had complete control over them. And as shocking as this mass suicide is, it doesn't strike us as unique. If anything, it reminds us of Jonestown, Waco, Texas with the Branch Davidians, and here in Canada, the Solar Temple, the Order of the Solar Temple, which also conducted a mass suicide. Not all cults end with such catastrophic drama. Many operate under the radar, but their impact on people's lives is no less devastating. For this reason, many Christians are suspicious of organized religion, especially if it's outside of Orthodox Christianity. And in fact, one definition for a cult is any organization that has beliefs that do not conform with Orthodox Christianity, which is defined by the Nicene Creed. And I think by that definition, we should not be ashamed to say we're a cult. But there is another definition, and I think it's the definition that we should use as our working definition. And it comes from Stephen Hassan, or Stephen Hassan, in his seminal book, Releasing the Bonds, Empowering People to Think for Themselves. And he defines a destructive cult. He says this, There are many types of destructive cults, and the diversity of cult beliefs and practices sometimes makes it hard for family member and friends to decide whether their loved one is in trouble or not. All cult members may not look alike, but I have found that destructive cults follow specific behavior patterns that set them apart from other groups. By learning to identify these patterns, you will be better qualified to determine if someone you care about 
is actually involved with a cult. A group should not be considered a cult merely because of its unorthodox beliefs or practices. So that's good. Instead, destructive cults are distinguished by their use of deception and mind control techniques to undermine a person's free will and make him dependent on the group's leader. I think this is a powerful definition. Let me just read it again and really try to grasp what he's saying here. A group should not be considered a cult merely because of its unorthodox beliefs or practices. Instead, destructive cults are distinguished by their use of deception and their use of mind control techniques. For what purpose? To undermine a person's free will. So if you're in an organization where you find your free will cannot be exercised and, and, and people are using deception and mind control, you're in a cult. That, that's the definition, that they're robbing you, they're undermining you of your free will. Mind control techniques to undermine a person's free will and make him dependent on the group's leader. So if you find that you can't make a decision unless you check with the leader first, that's a red flag. As, as, as human beings, as intelligent human beings made in the image of God, you should be free to use your mind to make your own decisions. So we ask now, with that working definition, is the church of God a cult? So we can say, yeah, we, we have unorthodox beliefs. We don't, we don't fit with the Nicene Creed. So if they want to call, call us a cult, yeah, I'll accept that. But what about a destructive cult? An organization that undermines people's free will using deception and mind control. Well, I'm going to answer and say, first of all, the Church of God is not a monolithic organization. So the Church of God is, is multiple organizations. The Bible says that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So not everybody in an organization, like CGI, has the Spirit of God. And not everybody that has the Spirit of God is in CGI. So, so the Church of God is anybody that has the Spirit of God. That's the Church. And, and we span across multiple Churches of God organizations. But again, using this as a working definition, I'm going to say, yes, the Church of God has elements that are cultish. You, you need to be careful which part of the Church of God you fellowship with. Because there are men in the Church of God movement who are cult leaders, who are using the Bible and deception and mind control techniques to rob you of your free will. That's harsh. But I stand, I stand here and I declare that. We need to be careful. Turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And, and look at this scripture. That It's a scripture we've read many, many times. But let's just read it carefully and see what it's saying here. Matthew 24 prophecy of the end time and speaking to his disciples we'll pick it up in verse 4 
look at what Jesus says to them. So they're asking him about the end time. And Jesus answered and said unto them, he's speaking to his disciples, Take heed, you be careful, that no man deceive you. In other words, men are coming to deceive you. You're my disciples, and men are coming to deceive you. So you be careful. You take heed. Why? For many shall come in my name. Many will come in my name. They're going to appear to you, and they're going to use the name Jesus Christ. And if you're not careful, you're going to hear Jesus Christ, and you're going to think everything's okay. This is good. They're talking about Christ. They're not talking about Muhammad. They're not talking about uh, the Hindu religion. They're talking about Christ. And you lower your guard. Many will come. Not a few. Many. They come in my name. And what will they say? What's going to come out of their mouth? That I am Christ. They will tell you that I am Christ. And using my name and preaching my religion, they shall deceive not a few, but many. I think when we read this, we're quick to assume that this is the pagan churches. These are the churches that are clearly not following scripture, but they use the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd like to suggest that we read this a bit more carefully. And we read into it that within the Church of God movement, there are going to be men that have the Bible and will be reading from the Bible saying, coming in Christ's name and saying, Christ is Christ. You need to understand Christ. And using the Bible and Christ's name, they will deceive many. And the warning from Christ is, take heed. Take heed. There's a website called misinformmedia.com, and it talks about mind control, and it says this. Any form of manipulation over another person's emotional or mental state can be considered mind control. Persuading a person or a group of people to put their will aside in order to conform or follow yours. So you may have things that you want to do that you think are right. But if I'm using mind control techniques, I'm going to deceive you and I'm going to force you to comply with my will and go against your own conscience. And that happens, brethren. Let's not be naive. That happens in the church of God. It can happen organization-wide where a whole organization is under some megalomaniac or... It could be a sound organization, but there's a congregation which is under a megalomaniac, somebody with a big ego. And so the the organization is sound, but this particular congregation is not sound because there's a man coming in Christ's name, saying Christ is Christ, but robbing you of your free will. They go on to say this. There are four levels of mind control. Layer one is the physical layer, and it's the five senses. In other words, the only way I can control your mind is if I have access to your mind. And the only way I can get access to your mind is through one of your five senses. So the scripture actually says, faith comes by hearing. 
and hearing by the word of the Lord. So, so somebody has to come and preach the word of the Lord in order to access your mind for you to say, okay, I, I believe that. So the physical layer, I, I need access to your mind in some way through one of the five senses. The second is the logical layer. Once we have someone's attention, we can provide them with information where their logic kicks in and they process what they hear. So physical layer, then the logical layer. The third layer is the emotional layer. And this is where the real manipulation begins. When powerful emotions such as fear and anxiety or a sense of belonging are triggered, logical processing begins to be compromised. So I can speak here and tell stories and raise anecdotes and, and give examples that are toying with your emotions. And this is where your logic begins to break down. The fourth layer and this is the real kicker, they refer to as the hyper-arousal layer. The hyper-arousal layer. This is the fight-or-flight response. It is triggered when we are told that we are under immediate threat. So if you're in an organization and the leader is constantly telling you that the bad guys are out there and they're coming to get us, or... If you don't do what I say, you could die today and lose your eternal life. Or we're going to flee to a place of safety and you'll be left behind. This kind of language triggers the amygdala. And it, it, it triggers fear and it floods the body with hormones and you can't think straight. And if this is constant, constant, constant you begin to shift, your, your programming gets reprogrammed, and you're no longer yourself. And this we refer to as a destructive cult. And we can say categorically, this happens in the church of God, even by well-meaning ministers. Ministers can mean well, but this is a, the Bible is a powerful tool. When I stand before you as a minister of God, and I say God says, really there's no greater power. I have the greatest power on earth. Somebody could be holding a gun to your head and saying, I say do X. And I can stand up as a minister of God and says, the Bible says do Y. And you'll choose to do Y if you're a true believer. And you'll lose your life. So I have more power than a gun. I have more power than an army as a minister to say, I represent God and God says. Just dangerous, dangerous ground that we're treading. So the Bible tells us many, not a few, many will come in my name saying I am Christ and shall deceive many. I'd say the majority. So the majority of well-meaning Christians in the Church of God movement will be deceived by many variations of deception. Deception will come in all flavors different kind of angles, but there'll be this fundamental truth that Christ is Christ. This word, when Christ warns us in Matthew 24 to take heed, the Greek word blepo, and it's in the form blepet, which is plural. So he's saying to all of them, take heed. It's, act, it's present tense right now, it's active, 
and it's imperative. It is a command. Christ is commanding us through the disciples, be careful. It means to be able to see, to gain one's sight, to beware of, to consider, to regard, to see something, to perceive, to discover, to find. So as a minister, as your minister, one of your ministers, as I'm preaching to you, hopefully you didn't check your brain in at the door. So, you know, your brain's active out there, but as soon as you come through these doors, you turn your brain off and you accept whatever I say. That's, that's disobeying Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is basically saying, whenever, whenever somebody stands up before you as a minister of God coming in my name, and he uses my name, Jesus Christ, that should send shivers down your spine. The red flag should go up immediately. You should say, uh-oh, I just heard somebody say Jesus Christ. Somebody's coming in Christ's name, preaching Christ. I'm awake, and I'm aware, and I'm blepo. I'm looking and I'm listening because they're getting through the physical layer. Accessing my mind, giving me information that I'm going to process, the logical layer is on, and if I feel emotional about it, I'm going to question these emotions. And why is this person stirring these emotions? And if they start threatening me with death and fire and torture, if I leave the group, I'm not buying that. Because I'm staying aware. And just because you come in Christ's name, preaching Christ, that's no pass. That's not a passport to my brain. What I'm going to do is study the Bible myself and compare and discern. Because that's what I'm commanded to do. So what I want to do in the sermon today, brethren, is I want to help us discern dysfunctional authority in the Bible, in, in in the church. And I want to make no mistake, there is authority in the church. Because I think some of us have been burned in the past, and we now want to cast off all authority and say there's no such thing as authority in the church. Well, let's look at this and see that there is, in fact, authority in the church. But let's develop healthy relationships within that context. There's no authority in the church that is authorized by God to rob you of your free will, to rob you of your critical thinking. And and I I guess I want to direct this specifically to our young people. We are all vulnerable, but young people especially. Older people tend to become cynical. You know, we've been around the block a few times. We've been hurt a few times. We've seen seen a few things, and, and we tend to be cynical. Younger people tend to be idealistic, tend to not know how, how wicked people can be. And if somebody puts on a suit and tie, smiles nicely, uh, it's easy to accept that they must, mean, they must be sincere. But we have to use the Bible and see beyond this. Also, you're here in Burlington. I, I think we're trying to create a safe place, a healthy environment for you, and I think we've done that. But you're not going to be here forever. We may not be here forever. So you're going to be in front of different people. Different, different men will be teaching you. Never turn your brain off. And so we want to just go through what is the relationship that you should have with the ministry. And as a young person, how much authority 
do I as a minister have over your life? Let's see what the Bible says. First, let's, and I want to spend some time in the um, pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And this is where the Apostle Paul is writing to these men as ministers to give them instructions as to how to be a minister. And, and, and these letters are public letters. So we get to kind of see clearly how much authority do ministers have because Paul is telling them to exercise authority. And where is that authority? And, and what authority is out of bounds? So, so what authority, if I start exercising as a minister of God, certain authority, when can you say out of bounds? Adrian, you're out of bounds. You don't have that authority. When can you say that? Well, let's, let's look at the scriptures. Let's begin in Titus, <clears throat> Titus 1. Titus 1, and let's pick it up right at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's coming in Christ's name. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So the truth is after godliness. Remember, Christ says, many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So they have the truth, but they're using the truth to deceive. Here we see that the truth is after godliness. So if it's truth, the fruit that it will have is godliness. Truth doesn't have evil fruit. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due times manifested his word through preaching. So his word does come through preaching, so it's going to come in through the physical layer. You're going to hear it. Which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause, this is why, here's the reason why I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed you. So there is structure. So Paul leaves Titus behind in Crete and says the reason I'm leaving you behind is to set things in order. So this structure that we see in the church of brethren with elders over them, is authorized structure. We can't deny this. But the reason for the structure, Paul makes clear. He's not saying, you know, set elders up because they may have had a tough life and maybe people didn't respect them when they were young and they need a break. So put them in a position where people can look up to them and call them mister and call them father and then call them pastor and then they'll feel better about themselves. That's not the purpose. What's the purpose? Why should he set this in order? So he's first going to give the qualifications of the men to look for, and then he'll say what they're to do. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, 
not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. So it's somebody that understands the truth and is holding on to it the way it's been handed down to him. He's, he's faithful with the word of God. Why? That he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So find these men who understand the truth, who do not compromise the truth, but understand the truth in such a way that it leads to godliness. We saw that earlier. The truth leads to godliness. So there should, they should have a manner of life that demonstrates godliness. It's not that they grasp the truth intellectually, but their life is a shambles. It's that they understand the truth in such a way that they are living it. So they have this grounding in the truth, and with that grounding, they're able to exhort and to convict the gainsayers. Now, why is this an issue? For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Many will come in my name. Many. Saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. You be careful, therefore, and you discern. And pick men who can withstand this. Pick men so that when other men get up and start deceiving and teaching things that are not true, these men can get up and stop it. Because the, the sheep need nutrition. And we can't have people poisoning the nutrition. Because that will kill the flock. So you set men up who will protect the food supply. Because again, truth leads to godliness. And we need to feed on truth so that we become a godly people. For there are many unruly and vain talkers. They talk nonsense. And they're deceivers. Especially they of the circumcision. So at this time, those who were, in a sense, in the church, they, they came up through true religion. They're not Greeks. They're part of the covenant community. They're the worst. whose mouths must be stopped. So we're going to put people in authority. Why? Because these people's mouths must be stopped at the physical layer. Don't even allow the words to access God's people's ears. So, so protect the, the deception at the physical layer. Who subvert whole houses Teaching things which they ought not. Why? For filthy lucre's sake. So there's a motivation of, of gold and silver here. Wealth. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, gluttons. This witness is true. This is true. The Cretans are this kind of people. which all the more speaks to the need for the Christian church to have the truth preached to them so that they can be transformed. But in any case, it goes on. Wherefore, notice the level of authority that Titus has and is giving to the elders that he raises up. Rebuke them sharply. 
exercise full authority, the full weight of your authority, exercise on these people, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. So what we notice here is there is structure in the church, but it's not structure just for structure's sake. It's structure to protect the food supply that the sheep must be fed, and they must be fed healthy, nutritious truth. And we can't have men rising up and poisoning the food supply. So with the full weight of ministerial authority, rebuke them sharply. Their mouths must be stopped. This is a fundamental purpose of the ministry. It doesn't say, you know, with the full weight of authority, Tell people which car to buy. With the full weight of ministerial authority, tell people who to marry. Tell people who they can talk to and who they can't talk to. It doesn't say this. It says the structure is there to protect the flock. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness. Again, this is the purpose of the truth, to get us to lead godly lives, to develop godliness. So denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. So when somebody is going to come preaching to you about Christ, the purpose of Christ coming was to buy us, to redeem us, to teach us how to lead godly lives. So it, it doesn't make, it's incongruous for me to teach you about Christ and at the same time ask you to break God's commandments. So if God says for you to honor your parents, And I'm saying, I come in the name of Christ, and you must dishonor your parents. This is incongruous. And you need to see that. No one has the authority to ask you to countermand God's commands. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Not some iniquity, all iniquity. And purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So this is the purpose here. We're we're in Christ to become a peculiar people that, that love to do good works. These things speak. So as a minister of God, speak these things. And exhort, and notice this, and rebuke with all authority. So we see here that authority, the ministerial authority, is is really stressing two things. One is protecting the church from deception, from false teaching. The other is protecting it from ungodliness. And you'll see Paul, throughout the epistles of Paul, he is very gentle. He himself says he's like a mother to the brethren. But when it comes to false doctrine, he is harsh. And when it comes to immorality, he is harsh. He says to the, to the Corinthians, I'm not even there, and I'm telling you what, to, what I would do. I would throw that man out. 
So Paul doesn't joke when it comes to false doctrine and immorality. And that's the authority that we're seeing here in Titus, that these men are to exercise their authority to protect, protect the church from false doctrine and from immorality. And the authority of the ministry doesn't go any further. It doesn't go any further. Let no man despise you. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. So this is the objective, to to build a peculiar people that are ready for good works, to speak evil of no man. So if I'm up here speaking evil of people out there, the baddies, and I'm speaking evil of them, but my job is to tell you not to speak evil of any man. This is hypocrisy. I should be practicing what I preach, to speak evil of no man. Even the the archangel, Michael, said of Satan, the Lord rebuke you. He, He wouldn't come with railing accusations against Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And I think this is the sort of character that we should be developing. Not, not, not brawlers. To be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers. In fact, there it is right there. So the ministers must not be brawlers, and they must teach the brethren not to be brawlers. But if you're in an organization that's constantly telling you we're in some sort of a fight with our own brethren, I'm teaching you to be a brawler. And the Bible says this is not the case, but rather be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Not some men, all men. Show meekness unto all men. And I think there was a youth study we did, and I think it was you, uh, Daniel, where I asked, you know, what's the difference between wolves and sheep? And you said, oh, maybe it was Landon. Sheep have no defense. They, they have nothing sharp. Wolves have sharp teeth, sharp claws. And if you see brethren that are tearing people apart. This is not the behavior or a characteristic or an attribute of sheep. Sheep are gentle. Sheep don't tear people apart. And if ministers are tearing people apart, this is not the quality of sheep. So many are going to come in Christ's name. Do they have sharp teeth? Do they have sharp claws? Are you seeing blood drawn? when they speak. If they do, you've got to say, wait a minute. The minute you say Jesus Christ, the minute you say you're a minister of Jesus Christ, that doesn't comfort me. That that puts me on red alert. Because many are going to come in Christ's name saying he's Christ and shall deceive many. So what I'm looking for now is the truth of your behavior. Because truth leads to godliness. And here are the attributes to be ready for every good work, to obey magistrates, to be subject to principalities, in other words, law-abiding people, speak evil of no man, don't be a brawler, be gentle, show meekness unto all men. Everybody. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. In other words, we're not superior. We're here by God's grace. So what gives us the right to put people down? We're here by God's grace. And we're here for people. Rather than hate them, we love them. Even if they hate us, we are sacrificing ourselves to help them. So our relationship with everybody is love. 
We don't hate anybody. And if anybody is coming in Christ's name, teaching you to hate, you've got to discern. The red flag has to go up and say, wait a minute. Many will come in Christ's name and deceive many. Look at Acts 20. We've been in this passage quite a bit, but it's an important passage, Acts 20. Verse 28, again, take heed. So Christ told us to take heed. Now the Apostle Paul is telling us to take heed. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. So he has taught them the full truth of God. Now they must take heed to themselves and to all the flock. So he's speaking to the elders in in Ephesus. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So so the church at Ephesus has structure. The Holy Spirit has made the elders overseers over the church. There is structure here. Why? Why are you over the church? To feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So God has, Christ has purchased you with his own blood, And he has made elders overseers to feed you, to protect the food supply, and to make sure it's nourishing. So that we can be transformed into a peculiar people that are zealous for good works. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. So we we can put this side by side with Matthew 24. That many will come in my name, saying I am Christ. And when we put it side by side with Acts 20, the danger is not what's going on out there. The danger is what's happening in the church. That many will come in Christ's name, teaching that Christ is Christ. And they shall deceive many. And Paul is saying, this is what's going to happen here at Ephesus. After I depart, so I've been at the gate, I've been protecting, I've been discerning, I've been vigilant. Anytime I see any kind of false doctrine, I'm on it. It doesn't have any opportunity, and now I'm leaving. Over to you. You guys now need to be as vigilant because it's there. It's waiting. After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, so they'll be in the church, not sparing the flock. You're going to see claws. You're going to see teeth. You're going to see bloodshed with no mercy. Also, Even of your own selves, you ministers, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, the physical layer. It's got to start somewhere. So it's going to come out of somebody's mouth. It's going to go into somebody's ears. It's going to access their mind. It's going to access the logical layer. It's going to be influenced by the emotional layer. And it's going to be perverse, which might kick in the hyperarousal layer. And now people aren't thinking straight, and they're being carried away. To draw away disciples after them. So the motivation is egotistical. I'm saying Christ is Christ. I'm coming in Christ's name. But the motivation is for you to follow me. It's for you to feed my ego. Therefore, watch. Therefore, watch. 
Watch, stay alert. Just because I say the name Jesus Christ, don't switch off. Switch on. Open your Bible. Be alert. Jesus Christ is no passport. Anybody, anybody can stay. In fact, many will come saying Jesus Christ. That's when you're alert. Watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Was Paul concerned? Was Paul concerned that there would be deception in the church? Was Paul concerned that men would rise up and say the words Jesus Christ and people would follow along, but it would be a deception? I I think he was very concerned. And I think we're kind of uh, naive if we think, oh, we're in the church, it's all good. As long as you're in the church of God, any one of the branches, it's okay. Uh, No, it's not. We need to discern. This word watch, Gregorio, means to keep awake. Watch. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Let's go to Ezekiel 34. So we see this this challenge that Paul is dealing with in Ephesus, here in chapter 20 of Acts. It's not a new challenge. So he's saying that they're going to, to speak perverse things to draw disciples away after themselves. They'll be driven by their own ego, not the service of God, not the service of God's people. It's not new. Let's go to Ezekiel, just break into it, and see what's happening here. Ezekiel 34, verse 2. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. What? I have to read this again. God is telling Ezekiel to prophesy against the religious leaders of Israel. These are the co- this is the covenant community. He's not saying prophesy against the pagan priests. He's saying, inside my covenant community, I want you, Ezekiel, to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And say unto them, thus says the Lord God, unto the shepherds, I'm speaking to you now, you religious leaders, woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Wow. You're in a position of leadership over God's people, of influencing God's people, and your objective, your motivation, is to feed yourself. Sounds much like what Paul was warning us about. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flocks? Isn't that what a shepherd should be doing? Guiding, protecting, and feeding the flock? Drop down to verse 8. As I live, says the Lord God, surely, because my flock became a prey, they were not protected. They were exposed. And my flock became meat to every beast of the field. Come on in, guys. There's, there's nobody guarding. Anybody can have at it. This isn't new. You have shepherds that are negligent in their, in their duty. Because there was no shepherd. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. God does not take this lightly, but it happens, and it's been happening for centuries, where men are in leadership positions, leadership roles, but they don't care about the flock. They care about themselves. 
Therefore, verse 9, O you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. So when you're in the role of a shepherd, you are accountable to God for the state of health of the flock. And God is looking at the flock, and they are all over the place. Beasts have devoured them. And he says, I'm going to require, they're going to have to answer for this. I'm going to require my flock at their hand. And cause them to cease from feeding the flock. If you're not going to do it properly, I'll just take you out of the picture. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth. That they may not be meat for them. So you see, you get a sense of God's passion for his people. And when his people are being abused, it's not that it won't happen. When his people are being deceived, not that it won't happen. When his people are being poisoned, he's not saying it won't happen. It will happen. These things will happen. But God will act. He will act. But, but it will happen. And, and there's, a, there's a personal responsibility that you must have as young people. You're, you're part of this process. It's not that you just allow anybody to have authority over you. It's got to reconcile with God's word. Look at Philippians. This is something that Deacon Jan referred to earlier today during the youth study. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Verse 19, Paul is in prison. He cannot get to Philippi. He says this in verse 19, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be of good comfort. If I can send Timothy, I'll I'll feel much better when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded, not one, So whatever stage of the ministry Paul is at here, the only person in his network that he can send to Philippi and feel good about it is Timothy. So there are are many men preaching, many men that are over God's people. And they're preaching to God's people, leading God's people. And Paul has access to these men. He could write any one of them and say, go to Philippi and let me know how they're doing. And the only person he wants to send is Timothy. Why? Why? because I have nobody else like-minded who will naturally care for your state. The nature of man is to care for our own state. Naturally, I care about myself. Naturally, I will feed myself. So Paul could send me, and I'll come and I'll preach, but I'm really here to feed myself. That's my natural state. And Paul is saying, the only one I can send, the only person that's going to stand up in front of you and preach to you with a complete natural caring for you, not even thinking of himself, is Timothy. Verse 21. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. This, this is, uh, you know, as a minister I read this, it's, it's, it's uh, condemning. If I was alive, and working with Paul and ordained a minister, 
would Paul write this letter? And I'm reading it. You know, it's been sent to Philippi. It's been copied, and I get a copy of it. And it says, you know, I'm sending Timothy because there's nobody else like-minded. Everyone else just cares about their own things, not Jesus Christ. You know what? Odds are, probably, that this is real work to be a minister of God and get your personal cares out of the way. Get your ego out of the way and really care about God's people to the point where you will sacrifice your life for them. That's what God wants. And, and this, is, this, is, this sends chills down my spine to read this. And it should do yours as well. Again, when somebody comes saying Jesus Christ, that's no passport. If anything, that, that causes us to be on alert. So, how do we protect ourselves from authority in the church, which can be abused? So, we're not denying, we cannot, we cannot deny that there's authority in the church. It's very clear there is. So we don't want to be of that persuasion that we just want to cast off restraint and we don't want anybody telling us anything and, and we're all the same. That's not biblical. There are overseers. There are elders. But now the question is, if elders can be abusive, if elders can be selfish, if elders or shepherds just feed themselves and don't care about the flock, if they expose us to wild beasts, how do we protect ourselves? Okay. Let's, let's look at First Kings 13, this passage. So the first thing, our young people, which I said earlier, number one, Nobody is above the word of God. Nobody. Nobody. Till the day you die, just hold that in your mind. No one has more authority than the word of God. No one can go against the word of God. I could convince you that I'm a prophet. I'm a prophet of God, and I say to you, this is what you must do. What you must do is look at the word of God and say, is this in alignment? Is, is the prophet asking me to do what God's word says, or is it contradictory to God's word? And if it's contradictory to God's word, no matter how much pressure you're feeling, no matter how much everyone else agrees with the prophet, you have to say, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing this in God's word. And you don't have more authority than God's word. Your authority can only come from God's word. So let's look at this passage in 1 Kings 13. Beginning in verse 1, we'll just read the passage, it's, it's uh, self-explanatory. And behold, this is in the time of uh, Jeroboam, when there's a prophecy against Jeroboam. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. So that's where his authority came from, the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam, the king, stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar, the prophet did, in the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. So even hundred years before he was born, he was named that Josiah would come. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. 
speaking to the, of the altar. And men's bones shall be burnt upon you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him, lay hold on him. And his hand which he put forth against him dried up, so that he could not pull it again to him. The altar was also torn, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him again, and became as it were before. This miracle happened where he said, arrest him. His hand just dried up. He couldn't move it. It was paralyzed, shriveled up. He asked the prophet to pray for him, which he did, and it was restored. Verse 8, verse 7. And the king said unto the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. So you've you've done a good thing for me. I, I was in the wrong. You've done a good thing. Come home, and I'll feed you and I'll give you a reward for what you've done. Verse 8. And the man of God said unto the king, If you will give me half of your palace, I will not go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that you came. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. So in other words, the prophet is told, go to Bethel, prophesy against Jeroboam. While you're there, do not accept anything. Don't eat, don't drink, accept nothing. And don't go back the way you came, just keep going. Just, just nonstop, do your mission and get out of there. So he tells the king this, I'm under strict instructions from God. I can't eat with you. Even if you gave me half your palace, I wouldn't accept it. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto him, What way did he go? For his sons had seen that way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey. So they saddled him the donkey, and he rode thereon. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree and said unto him, Are you the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you nor go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. I'm under strict instructions. So I'm sorry I can't accept your gracious offer. Verse 17. Sorry, verse 18. He said unto him, I am a prophet also, as you are. So we're both prophets. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So many will come in my name and shall deceive many. So he's coming in the name of God, but he's deceiving the man. So, and, and his deception is, I come in the name of God. I'm a prophet also, 
And an angel said to me, this is what I should tell you. So you have to ask yourself, young people, what would you do? Well, God's told you this is what you must do. I come along and say, I'm a prophet. And I've got an angel who told me to tell you to do the opposite. And, and this really isn't academic. This happened here, and it's happening right now. Within the Church of God movement, there are men claiming to be prophets, claiming to speak for Christ, and telling the people of God to do the opposite of what God tells them to do. And they are doing it. That's the kind of pressure that can be on you to conform. And we have to know, do we bow to pressure? Verse 19. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. So he said, okay, if if God told you to tell me, I guess that's what I should do. Verse 20. And it came to pass, as they sat at the table eating, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, this is amazing. So I'm the prophet, and I tell you that God told me to tell you to come back and eat with me. And you got the word from God directly telling you not to do this. But you decide to listen to me, even though you heard from God directly. You come to my house, we're eating, and then the word of the Lord comes to me. And now I'm telling you from God, Thus says the Lord, For as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but came back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord, of the which the Lord did say to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of your fathers. So you will not, you'll not make it back will not be buried with your fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten the bread and had drunk, that he saddled for him the donkey, to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. So he lost his life. And he didn't make it back. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the donkey stood by it. And the lion also stood by the carcass. So the lion didn't eat the carcass. The lion didn't eat the man. It didn't attack the donkey. It just killed the man, killed the prophet, and stood by it. And the donkey stood by it. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet So again, I'm going to say to you young people, you're here in Burlington, we've set it as an objective to make this a safe community, to make this a safe place. You may not be here forever. We may not be here forever. Things change. You have to have this level of discernment that you have God's word. You don't need anybody to come to you to tell you the opposite of what God's word says. So if God's word says to you, honor your parents, Don't let anybody come to you and tell you the opposite. To tell you God told them to tell you, don't worry about the commandments. You've got it directly from God. You don't need to listen to anybody else, or it will end tragically. Now, you may be familiar with the Milgram experiment. It's called the Milgram experiment on obedience to authority figures. 
And this is an experiment that was carried out at Yale University by Stanley Milgram in the 60s. And he wanted to measure the willingness of participants to obey authority figures. And he did this at the time that uh, Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal, was being prosecuted. So he's being prosecuted in Germany. And Milgram was asking the question, would Americans do what the Germans did, what the Nazis did? Are, are we as vulnerable as the Nazis were? Because we, we think it's a shocking crime, it's a horrible thing that they did. So he did this experiment called the Milgram Experiment. And it goes like this. You may have heard of it. Two subjects come into a room with an experimenter, and they're both given, they're both given a basket to draw paper from. So they each get a paper, and they open it. And one says teacher, and the other says learner. In reality, they both say teacher, but there's an actor in the room. When the actor opens his, he says, oh, I drew learner. So the other person, the, the subject who's actually being experimented on, realizes he's the teacher. They're separated, and that's key. The learner goes into another room, so that separation is important because when we're connected to people, we behave differently than we're, when we're disconnected. Learner goes into a separate room, and he's connected to electric, an electric mechanism to administer electric shocks. And that's what the teacher must do. The experimenter is testing memory, and so I would give Ray a word, and um, you have to remember the word, and maybe I give you a few more words and see if you can still remember the first word. And if you don't remember, then the teacher administers an electric shock to help you learn. The teacher has a dial where she or he can turn up the electric shock. And as the experimenter, I'm telling the teacher each time you make a mistake to administer a greater shock. The maximum is 450 volts, at which you would actually kill somebody. And they ask, well, what do you think? How many people would actually go the full way to the point where they actually murder somebody over a stupid memory test? And they thought, like, maybe 1%, maybe 2%, but most people just, their conscience wouldn't allow them to do that. So they do the experiment, and they have, it's an actor, and, and, and they, they, they can't see the person, but they can hear them. And uh, they turn up the dial, and it's like, oh, ouch, you know, that, that hurts. And the experimenter just keeps saying, turn up the, the, the pain level, the, the shock level, to the point where the person is crying out in agony, screaming. And the teacher is confused. So the teacher looks to the experimenter and says, like, they're in pain. And the experimenter has one of four responses. He says, please continue. He says, the experiment requires that you continue. He says, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And then he says, you have no other choice. You must continue. He always says one of these four responses. Not 1%, not 2%. How many went all the way? And it's to the point where the person is screaming out in agony, and then they, then they just stop. You don't hear anymore. You assume they've died. 65% went all the way. 65%. Because there was a man in a white robe that said, you must continue. The experiment requires that you continue. 
it is absolutely necessary that you continue. So we'll just say, okay. What if this man in the white robe is a minister telling you to bite and devour your fellow brethren? And it's going against your conscience. And he's saying, you must do this. The word of God says you must do this. At what point will you say, I'm sorry, you don't have that authority? Or would we be like the 65% that just go along? And I have to say, based on personal experience, my observation is, in the church of God, we have that 65% who just go along. And the young people are especially vulnerable. And so we're hoping that we're training you to know the word of God. You know, one thing I must say with my wife, when we, we saw some of this happening, as a young person, she memorized the Bible. She knew her Bible. And when people are saying X, she's saying, no, the Bible says Y. When people are saying up, she's saying, no, the Bible says down. But most people, if they don't know the Bible, they can't do this kind of reasoning. So it's important to be familiar with what the Word of God says so that we can discern. You have personal boundaries. There there is space that you have around yourself that nobody can intrude. No one. Not your father, not your mother. When you get married, not your spouse, not your children. Every single one of us has boundaries that nobody can violate. And look at Ephesians 6. God never puts us in a position where our personal boundaries can be compromised. Never. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents. What more do I need to say? Children, obey your parents. Except there's a problem. Your parents could come in my name saying I am Christ and deceive you. So obey your parents, but be vigilant. Obey them in the Lord. Obey them as long as what they're telling you to do conforms to God's word, for this is right. So that's obedience. Notice in verse 2, honor your father and mother, and there's no qualification. So obey your father and mother in the Lord. There may be times when you don't obey them if they're, if they're out of bounds. If they're outside of the Lord's will, outside of the Lord's commandments, you don't obey them. But there's no qualification on honor. Honor your parents all the time which is the first commandment with promise. Now, notice this. God tells you to obey your parents, but he doesn't just leave it there. In verse 4, he says, you fathers, don't provoke your children. So I'm, I'm putting them under your authority, but you don't have free reign. I'm putting them under your authority, but I'm telling them that if you're outside of the Lord, they're not to obey you. But even if you're inside the Lord, you're not to provoke them. So put a boundary, put a limit on your authority. You don't have free reign. Notice in verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh. But it doesn't stop there. 
notice this is countered in verse 9. You masters do the same things unto them. So, so I'm, I'm putting the servants under you, but you don't have free reign. You have to govern yourself in such a way that you respect their personal space. You respect their dignity. Same with husbands and wives. So wives, be submitted, submissive to your husbands. But husbands, you don't have free reign. You make sure you love them as Christ loves the church. So God constantly creates this structure where somebody is in charge, but that doesn't mean they have free reign. There are boundaries. Now, I think a phrase that you can use if you ever feel uncomfortable, that somebody is overstepping their authority, to just simply say, that doesn't work for me because I don't think it works for God. So somebody says something to you, maybe that's inappropriate. That doesn't work for me because I don't think that works for God. Somebody touches you in a way that you feel is inappropriate. Somebody tells you to make a decision that you feel is inappropriate. And they're exercising authority over you. That doesn't work for me. I don't think it works for God. And see how they react. And if they react to say, well, actually, it does. Let me show you in the scripture what it said. Well, now we can reason what the scripture means. And they're coming to you from scripture. We just have to see, are they interpreting the scripture properly? But if they react in a hostile way, they're coming from ego. If you say, I don't think that works for God, and they get upset, they're feeding themselves. So, have, have, be, be prepared that when somebody oversteps their authority with you, you're ready with a response, that you can discern where are they coming from. And if the response is, I'm sorry, you're right, that's a humble person. That's a good person. But if the response is anger or frustration, you're dealing with a wolf. The other, so that's one. You, you have to take personal responsibility for your space, for your personal boundary. And, you know, the Nazis would say, I was just following orders. No, that's not good enough. You're not just following orders. You have a responsibility. The other protection, though, comes from the way God has structured authority in the church. If you'll notice when we looked at Titus, he said, ordain elders, plural, in every city, singular. So there's one church, but ordain multiple elders in that church. So plurality is a way that God protects us from abuse of authority. That there's checks and balances in the ministry. So if I want to say something or do something, and and Pastor Murray says, I don't think that's a good idea, I don't have authority over him. So, So he has the authority to tell me, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So that way you're protected with multiple perspectives. Or you might, maybe I say something that's a bit harsh and I'm unwilling to listen, you can appeal to Pastor Murray. So there is this check and balance by having multiple elders. And, and again, when Paul called the elders in Ephesus, one church, the Ephesian church, he called all the elders, plural, to that meeting. Look at Acts 14. Acts 14 and verse 23 says, And when they had ordained them elders, plural, in every church, singular, and had prayed with fasting, 
they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So in every church, the structure was to have plurality of eldership. No one person was to be over the church and do whatever they want with the church. There was this natural check and balance by having multiple elders in the church. And we saw in Titus earlier the qualities, and and Timothy as well, the qualities of, in fact, let's turn to uh, 1 Timothy 3 to see the qualities of the elders, the the, the kind of men they must choose to be in this leadership role. Uh, He stated in Titus, he also states here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, able to teach, able to feed the sheep, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler. And that's important, not a brawler. Somebody's going to fight, and and, in Titus he said, not self-willed. These are humble men. These are men that will listen to each other. They're easily entreated. You can approach them anytime and say, can I have a word? You know, I'm a bit uncomfortable with what you said the other day. And they'll listen. They'll be humble. When they talk with each other and they disagree, they'll listen to each other. Let me hear where you're coming from. Well, this is what I think. Well, why don't we sleep on it and come back to it tomorrow? They're not the kind of men that are going to force things to have it done absolutely the way they said. One that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God, the house of God? Okay, let me just wrap up here. I'll skip. I was just going to show you some other scriptures that show you again, plural, in Hebrews 13. Obey them, plural, that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. And again, uh, anybody can come in here and say anything but we, the elders, have to give an account. And God will require the flock at our hand. So we, we are accountable for what the brethren believe and how, they, how you live your lives. And, and truth leads to godliness. So we have to make sure that truth is taught and we are becoming godly in the process. Okay, let me see where I will finish here. Um, Let's finish in 1 Corinthians 4. Let me uh, just uh, actually just pick up this one scripture. Uh, first, hold 1 Corinthians 4. We're going to come there. Um, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, this is important. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, now the end of the commandment, the, the purpose of the commandment. So I'm up here as a man of God saying I'm a prophet or an apostle or just even an elder, but in some way I'm saying I come in the name of Christ and I'm telling you the commandment of God. This is what God commands you to do. Well, you have to know what the objective of the commandment is. So what's the objective of the commandment? If I'm, if I'm up here telling you to do things that are tearing families apart, t- 
tearing people apart, destroying lives. Well, the end of the commandment is charity, agape, out of a pure heart. That, that's where we should be heading, that we're becoming more loving people. We're, we're loving out of a pure heart and of a good conscience. That you're not doing something that in your heart you feel is evil and your conscience is, is, is torturing you because you know in your mind you're doing the wrong thing. That should not be the result of, that should not be the fruit of my teaching. The fruit of my teaching is you're becoming a more loving person, you're becoming a more patient person, you're becoming a more godly person, and, and, and people are benefiting from your love. That, that's what the, the, the fruit should be. And a good conscience. Your conscience is clear. You're not tortured. You're not conflicted. And of faith unfeigned. So you're not in here in the community pretending you have the faith that the rest of us have because you're just trying to fit in. Fit into something that's actually perverse. No, you love to be here. You want to be here. This makes sense to you. From which, this faith, some have swerved and turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof what they affirm. They don't know what they're talking about because the law is to make us more loving. Okay, 1 Corinthians 4.17, we'll wrap up here. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For this cause I've sent you Timothy. So now he's sending Timothy to Corinth, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every every church. So notice this. Paul is teaching everywhere in every church, but what he wants them to be in remembrance of is his conduct, the godliness that he lived. It's not just academic doctrine. It's doctrine that leads to godliness. And Timothy is his right-hand man. He's trained Timothy, and Timothy has seen firsthand how he lives, and that's what he's going to bring them in remembrance to. Now, some are puffed up. Remember, they're creeping into the church. Some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them, which are puffed up. So they've got the words, coming in Christ's name, saying he's Christ, but the power. Let's test them and see if they have the power of the Holy Spirit. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come unto you then with a rod? Because I can do that. I do have authority. Or in love and in the spirit of meekness, which is really what the man of God, the way the man of God conducts himself. So brethren, I just wanted to cover this. Um, I, I, I am disheartened when I hear some of the things that happen in the church of God. Not, not CGI. I think CGI is doing tremendous work in building a healthy organization, in, in, in giving us elders and putting plurality of eldership in place so that we can have safe worship. But I am disheartened when I hear how some of the brethren are being abused by men who say, I'm coming in Christ's name. And and did you know that Christ is Christ? Let me tell you what the Bible says about Christ. They have the truth. And yet they're using it to have followers after themselves. And they're using it to feed themselves and live in big mansions off the backs of the brethren. So let's discern. Let's, Let's be respectful. Let's understand that there is structure, there is authority in the church. But let's also understand that there is never, ever, ever authority that crosses the line into your personal space and can abuse you. 
that is never authorized by the Bible. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you.